So if you want to learn about anything, it's important to start at the very beginning. That way you have a strong foundation to build upon. Well, everything in the Bible, and basically the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. Now, the Greek word for Genesis means beginning. And this inspired text reveals to us not only our origins, but our purpose, our meaning, and God's plan for mankind. A new Bible study guide and commentary is available from Ignatius Press on the book of Genesis. And it is also quite the adventure. And I can think of no better person as a guide for this adventure than Steve Ray. Steve is joining me today to step us into the beginning of our faith in his new book, simply called Genesis. Good morning, Steve. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Brenda. It's been too long. I always enjoy our interviews together, and uh, the book I just wrote on Genesis is a great and worthy topic, I think, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. I'll tell our listeners to strap on their their seatbelts because this is an adventure (laughs) for sure. Steve, look, there are ancient stories in this book. Creation, Adam and Eve, Noah and the Flood, and of course... Abraham. God seemed very active, too, and involved in these first stories of our salvation history. Kind of set the stage for the book of Genesis. Well, the book of Genesis is obviously the first book of the Bible, so everything else is built off of that, like you just said. It's the beginning. And it tell, in a way, I'd say it's the most important book of the Bible because it gives us an idea of who we are, where we came from, what our destiny is, where are we going, why is there suffering and troubles and problems and pain in the world? That's not the way God made it, but he explains why that happened. And the book of Genesis also tells that there's going to be the, uh, God himself is going to drop behind enemy lines in the future, and he's going to rectify it. He's going to fix the problems, which he did in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's kind of a subversive dropping behind the enemy lines to start a rebellion, to bring back a new kingdom that God is reestablishing. And so the whole book of Genesis lays all of this out, how it begins. And the book, the first 11 chapters deal with, like you said, creation, and then the fall of man because of sin, and then Noah, they're starting over again in Tower of Babel. But the book of Genesis, most people think of it only as the creation story, but that's only the first three chapters. But the last 40 chapters of the book deal with four, actually three, yeah, four of the most important patriarchs. You deal with Abraham his son Isaac, and then that gnarly, crazy character named Jacob, who is just is a fun story to talk about and read, and then Joseph. So the last 40 chapters are on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And I have to admit that when I finished writing the book, I was sad because I really got to know these characters. I enjoyed interacting with them, explaining them in a way, inviting them into the living room to discuss this with them before I wrote it in the book uh, through Scripture. And and, And I use a lot of Jewish commentaries, Catholic church fathers, secular. Uh, so it's really, I think, a well, well-rounded book, and I've been told it reads like a novel. Oh, 
Perfect, because the book of Genesis is complex and there are stories in it. You know, we look at the seven days that God took to create the entire earth. And then there was a great flood where Noah managed to give two of every kind of animal into the boat. And then, of course, the story of Abraham and having a, a conversation with an angel to 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 save his son. These are stories. And I think many people go, yeah, well, for something written a long time ago, stories is how they relay information. But are there archaeological findings? And you've been around the world, Steve, on so many pilgrimage, taking people to all of these places on Earth. Are there archaeological findings that supports and tells us, yes, this is our history? Yeah, my whole approach to writing the book of Genesis is that this is true history. It's God's revelation to man. In other words, he created us with nose to smell, taste, hear, uh, and and touch and feel those five senses. And all of that we pick up from those five senses has to be processed by the gray matter between our ears, our brain. But that doesn't tell us why things happen. We can't go back in the future to figure out how it first began, or why it began. We can only determine certain things, and very limited in that. God has given us a revelation, and it begins with Genesis. He gives us a revelation to inform us of things that we could never know or discover ourselves. We can know something about God. In Romans 1, it says that we can know something of his divine nature and his power and so on by the things that he has made. It's the word, the Greek word poema, by the way, of his great masterpiece. We can learn something about him, but only limited amount in our natural selves. We need a revelation from God. God gives us that revelation in Scripture. It's his divine story, and it's true. When you go back and say Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans, that's the land of Iraq, and he came from a certain place while we went back there, and there is the ziggurat, the pyramid that he used to worship at. Abraham was a pagan until he was 75 years old. He worshiped other gods. And those places are there. The archaeology is there. I've been up to the top of the pyramid that he would have worshipped at in in, uh, in Iraq. And there's all of the paraphernalia, the, the pottery and the jugs and the jewelry and all of the wealth of that city of Ur. That's where he came from. All that once you get into Israel, then obviously all of that is very historical, and you can all of those stories could be tested. And, and the Bible's been challenged so many times. And guess what? It's still the number one seller. And it's still everybody knows it's a true book. But, you know, even with creation, it wasn't written, the creation story was not written for a scientific community. If if God had presented to Moses and the early Israelites his formula for creating light and his formula for creating the universe, nobody would even understand it today. Far too complex from the mind of God to create everything out of nothing. We wouldn't even understand the formula if he wrote it out for us on a blackboard. But what it does is it presents the story of creation in a way that people can understand at a pre-scientific age. It uses symbolism a lot, and it tells us how we got here. And in the seventh day, it said God rested. And people say, oh, he must have been really tired. No, God never gets tired. He's not a, a physical being. When it says that he rested, in the Hebrew, it means he ceased from his labors. In other words, he took that all of that creation energy, and, and then he ceased from his life, and he stood back and said, what I have made is very, very good. And he then is continuing to work. He never stops working. If he worked 
stopped. He keeps us in existence every day. If he didn't physically keep us in existence, we would vanish. So this is the whole idea of the creation story was written so that we could understand how we got here, what the purpose and meaning of our being here, and why we got into the trouble we got into in Genesis 3. Steve Ray joining us this morning on The Morning Bland, his new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary out by Ignatius Press. Steve, you mentioned uh, just a a few minutes ago talking about the commentary that you put together and you referenced many Jewish commentaries and rabbis and also our own Catholic faith. Is our understanding of salvation history and interpretation of of this book of the Bible very similar or even identical to that of our Jewish brothers and sisters who look to this book as a foundation of their faith as well? Yes and no. It is because they understand how God created the universe, how he created mankind and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What they do not see when they study Genesis is what is the fuller revelation that we now have in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the Messiah that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 when sin came in. God went walking in the cool of the evening, looking for Adam and Eve for their regular evening walk. Where are you? And they were hiding from God because they had sinned. And God says, I will bring enmity between the serpent and you and between his seed and your seed. And it's referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's going to be a savior who comes, who's going to have his heel bit by the serpent, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's Jesus destroying the devil at the cross when he died. So the Jews understand the whole story like we do, but they do not see the Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I've done in the book is showed typology. What I mean by that is all of the book of Genesis from the very beginning just screams the Trinity. It just screams out that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. And when he came, we recognized him as Jesus, which the Jews rejected, and they also reject the Trinity. But even in the beginning, God says, let us make men in our image. What does he mean by us? Well, the writer of the Genesis didn't know about the Trinity at the time, because that was something that wasn't revealed till later. But let us make man in our image. Some have said it's the divine plural, like a king says, we have determined, or the angels. But the angels are never said to be involved in the Mm. creation God Mm -hmm. creates. And so it comes back to, whereas we now, when we look back with the fullness of revelation in Christ, we see there that's very possibly the Trinity. We, let us make them in our image. So the whole Testament for us Christians, we, we look back through Christ as the lens back into the book of Genesis, and we see a lot of depth and layers of meaning, I think, which the Jews often miss. Oh, Steve, and just hearing your commentary, it just, I think of the passage of how the wind blew across the waters. And of course, we know that beautiful image yes. of the Holy Spirit blowing yes. over. Steve, that's Ray. the Trinity. Yes. That, just real quick, that's the Trinity. God, God is creating. He speaks his word. What's his word? Jesus is the word of God. So you have the Father who speaks his word, Jesus, and the Spirit is over hovering over the waters. So there you have the Trinity right there in the first two verses of the Bible. Uh. Absolutely perfect. Steve Ray joining us today to talk about his new book, 
it's Genesis. It is a Bible study guide and commentary. Steve, this has been a great conversation. There is more to the second longest book in our Bible that I want to talk to you about. I am coming up against my break. Can you stay with me through the break so we can continue in the next half hour? Absolutely. And I am back with the adventurous Steve Ray. Steve has set out on a journey, an adventure, so to speak, to help us understand more fully the book of Genesis. His new book is out by Ignatius Press, and Steve is staying with us today to talk more about it. Good morning, Steve. Thanks so much for staying with us. Sure, I'm more than happy to. Steve, as we ended our first half of our interview, we began to understand about the Trinity in the way that really right in the very beginnings, that's where we start our understanding of the Trinity, but then also about Christ's mission on earth. So let's start here. Is it even possible to fully realize Christ's mission on earth without fully understanding the content and context of Genesis with reference to a coming Messiah? The whole uh, of Scripture, even the New Testament, it's written by Jews, except for the uh, Luke, who's a Gentile but was very Jewish in his perspective. So the whole idea of the Jewishness of Genesis in the Old Testament flows right into Jesus and Mary, who were Jewish, and the whole beginning of the New Testament, which is very Jewish. But it all goes back to the book of Genesis. Even the Gospel of John, I've also written a 450-page commentary on John's Gospel called John, a Bible study guided commentary. And he starts his book with, in the beginning. And I said, well, wait a minute, there's another book that starts that way. Genesis starts with, in the beginning. And I think John is all based on Genesis. And when he says, in the beginning, he's saying, if you want to understand my book that begins with, in the beginning, you have to understand the first one first. So the book of Genesis really lays the groundwork for everything. We talk about Jesus being the priest and the king who gives us out of Jerusalem, brings us his body and blood in the, under the forms of bread and wine. Well, guess what? In Genesis 14, Abraham, who represents the people of God and all of us were still in his loins at the time, he approaches a Jerusalem and out comes the prophet and the king Melchizedek, who brings them bread and wine, which is a very extravagant meal he brought out to Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek, the prophet and king, comes out of Jerusalem and brings him bread and wine. The church from the very beginning has always understood that as a picture, prefiguration of Jesus coming out of the city of Jerusalem and bringing us his body and blood, which he did. So right there in Genesis 14, you have the whole foundation. And by the way, the priests that we have today are not priests according to Aaron or the Jewish tribe of Levi. They are priests that their, their priesthood goes all the way back 4,000 years ago to Genesis 14. The priests we have today are priests in the order of Melchizedek. We wouldn't even know that without the book of Genesis. Well, there are a few other things that we learn about. The very first references to some very important ideas in uh, yes. everyday life. God is love. And love is talked about right from the very beginning. Tell us about the first that we read about in the book of Genesis. One of the things I did in this book is, is talk about the first time things are used, the first time the word love is used, the first time camels are mentioned, or priesthood, or prayer. Very interesting where they're placed, very strategically, actually. The first time the word love is used, is saved all the way for Genesis 22. You never see the word love 
before Genesis 22. And there it says to Abraham, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. That's the first time the word love is used, of a father for his only begotten son. And if you hear, listen to those words, take your son, your only son whom you love. Is there a verse in the New Testament that reminds you of that? Maybe John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So in this picture of Abraham, who is now going to offer his only begotten son, is a picture of God the Father, who 2,000 years later is going to offer his only begotten son. And guess where Mount Moriah is? It says, take your son to Mount Moriah. We find out that Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah a thousand years later, and then two thousand years later, Mount Moriah is the top of the mountain, the top of Jerusalem. And where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem. So the Father brought His only begotten Son to the same place as Abraham and offered Him as a sacrifice there. And then it gets even more interesting. In in the book of Genesis, it says that Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice on his back. What did Jesus carry on his back on his way to the sacrifice? The wood of the cross. The angel, when Abraham saw the ram with his head stuck in a thorn bush and used that ram as a substitute for his son Abraham, what did Jesus have his head stuck in when he went up to the cross to die? He had his head stuck in a thorn bush too, the crown of thorns. Now, Abraham, he loved his son and he was probably 15 years old, but a 15-year-old boy could have resisted his father over 100 years old. So it also appears that Abraham, and the Jews teach this as well, that Abraham was a willing sacrifice. He didn't fight his father. There's no way his father could have gotten him up on top of a big altar without without, uh, Isaac helping him. So Isaac was a willing victim, just like Jesus was a willing victim. So the parallels between Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice with Jesus and his son as a sacrifice. You see the whole passion of Christ before you ever get out of the book of Genesis. Steve Ray is joining us on an adventure today into the book of Genesis. His new book, title, in fact, Genesis, A Bible Study Guide and Commentary Out by Ignatius Press. Steve, your knowledge of the Old Testament is is vast and your ability to connect it to the world is incredible. For many of us, though, I feel like maybe I might need a stack of history books and uh, a, a big Bible that's written easily for, for just common people like me to understand and then crack open the book of your study guide. For our listeners, kind of explain to us, though, how you've written this so that way, well, all of us can get through this book with just a very ease of understanding. I'm not a theologian or a philosopher. I'm a simple guy. And a simple guy who loves the Bible. My mom and dad were Baptists, and they taught me to love the Bible from the time I was seven years old or whatever. I had to learn all the books of the Bible and memorize them. They gave me a, a great love and desire for the, for the Bible, and I have 20,000 books in my house about mainly about the Bible. So, But I'm not a theologian or philosopher. I'm not writing this for the, uh, you know, the high academic realms. I'm writing it for average people with great stories that I tell to relate the book of Genesis. And I, I'll give you two examples. One of the editors who's with Ignatius Press editing over 40 years said she had a hard time editing my book because she kept forgetting she was an editor and she got engrossed in the story and would be reading along 10 pages and said, oops, I got to go back. I'm supposed to be editing this book. And another person who read it said that in chapter two about the creation, 
that it was so meaningful that they read it with tears running down their eyes about how God had created male and female and his purpose for them and how the male and the female were to interact together under the lordship of Christ and in the garden. And tears are running down her eyes when she read it. She said it was like a a devotional um, Lectio Divina kind of a thing. So it really reads like a novel. I, I, I think that many have said they can't set it down. <laughs> so, But I wrote it that way to be fun, but I also brought out the, the deeper meanings and the typology and where the Trinity is being reflected and where you can see Christ in the very beginning, you can see, oh, and by the way, for those three, remember when Abraham was in his tent in the sun at the heat of the day, it was noon, and it's so hot, he was in the shade sitting in his tent, and all of a sudden, there were three men standing there. It doesn't act like they arrived, it's just like they they were there, boom, and he surprised him, and he calls them Lord, and we learn that those three strangers there were the Trinity, Ambrose and Augustine and the fathers of the church say, when we see these strangers talking to Abraham, we're walking in very deep waters because here we see the Trinity. So I like to say, where's the only place in the Bible we see where God walked on the earth with all six feet? The Trinity came down to visit Abraham. And so this is something that I I go into great detail about too in the book. Well, it is a big book, many pages, and I just look forward to just reading so much more about this, Steve. I am so appreciative of your time today. We just have a moment left for our listeners. I can't let you go without finding out where's your next adventure coming up that maybe some of our listeners might be excited to join you on one of your pilgrimages. Well, that's great. We, uh, I'm leaving for Poland in a week with two buses. We have four groups going to Israel still this year. Most of them are sold out. I think over the Christmas break, which we have for families, families bring their kids on that trip, and it just is a powerful, powerful effect on children and young adults. And so we still have a few seats there, but the other trips are sold out. Next year, we're going to Jordan and Israel. It's a longer trip, but fascinating because Jordan is the other part of the Holy Land. And so we're going to go through Jordan and Israel. We're doing Holy Land Part 2, which is all new sites that we don't do on our normal Holy Land trip. We have a St. Paul cruise coming up where we're going to follow all the footprints of St. Paul through Turkey and Greece on a ship. And then we've got coming up in in, uh, 2025, we're going to see the Shroud of Turin, and we're going to be doing the Saints and Shrines of Italy because it's going to be the 25th Jubilee, a 25-year Jubilee. So we're going to Italy, and we're invited Teresa Tamio to come with us on that. And a lot of other trips, too. They're selling up fast. A lot of people know Father Dwight Longenecker. He's going with us on a trip. He's going with us in May, and we're going to kind of tag team on that one, and we're going to both be teaching together along that. So people really should jump on that one in May of next year. And go to catholicconvert.com. Everything's there. You can buy my book there. It's autographed. Every book that I sell, has I've signed them, and all our pilgrimages are there. So catholicconvert.com. Oh, fantastic. Well, I will include that link in the podcast of this interview for our listeners. You can get right to where you need to be to find out more about Steve Ray and his upcoming pilgrimage and purchase a book for yourself. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. God bless you. Safe travels. Thank you, Brenda. God bless you, too. Bye-bye.